hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. Beware, spoiler phobes. You have stumbled upon a storm of spoilers, a podcast about HBO's Game of Thrones series in conjunction with the Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. Martin. It is rethrone season as we re-watch the six previous ten episode seasons of Game of Thrones in preparation for season seven hitting HBO this July. It's highly recommended you catch up with the show as we go along, and our local book experts will also be cherry-picking literary and adaptation nuggets as we march towards a new, spoilable season of Game of Thrones. The Realm. Do you know what the Realm is? It's the thousand blades of Aegon's enemies. A story we agree to tell each other over and over till we forget that it's a lie. But what do we have left? Gaping pit waiting to swallow us all. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Hello and welcome to the Storm of Spoilers. My name is Dave Gonzalez, and I have not read any of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series. I'm Joanna Robinson, and I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And I'm Neil Miller, and I've read all of those books, too, along with a lot of Wikipedia articles. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess the Wikipedia articles and the Reddit pages, that's all going to come into play later on in our coverage of Game of Thrones. You have stumbled into Rethrones, our rewatch of the Game of Thrones seasons leading up to the new season in July. We're going to do a season per episode over the next six weeks. Uh, this is not going to include anything that is going to be spoilery for the seventh season without a whole bunch of warnings. Uh, beforehand so you don't have to worry about that we're back into game of thrones where we've settled into our citadel and are checking on our ravens joanna do we have any reviews we do we have a couple two that i wanted to read one is very short and it is from stevo 62301 five stars the title is guys 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 uh ellipses that's the title and then the body of the review is there was a Beastmaster 2 reference during their off-season tour. Five exclamation marks, five stars. So, uh, yes. thanks, Stevo. You're my kind of person. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, and then I'll read this other one um, from a listener called Starts with a J. At five stars, off-season tour in Bang is the headline. Uh, right. I'm ashamed to say that I stopped listening after the end of the last season of Game of Thrones. I missed a lot, apparently. Not only are they talking about Marvel stuff, but I'm also able to listen to them to help me make sense of the sometimes confusing American gods. During the regular season, I have a weekly tradition. I listen to a cast of Kings hosted by one of the hosts from this show, Joanna Robinson and David Chen. I then go check the Storm of Spoilers feed to see if that feed has a new episode so their magical voices can fill my head with spoilery goodness. Um... And then there's just a lot of stuff about me. Uh, and then it says, TLDR, this trio has awesome chemistry and great conversation about Game of Thrones and also other topics during the off-season. Don't make my mistake and stop listening during the off-season. 
I love that that review is basically, you know, the 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 gif from Community of Donald Glover walking back into the apartment that's on fire. <laughs> like that's what that guy experienced when he realized that we had an off-season tour. Oh, and it's the opposite cuz like that's bad news, but this is like whatever the opposite of of the room being on fire would be, right? Maybe. It's the, I, I think it's the not darkest timeline. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's it was a, it was an interesting experiment for sure that I'm sure will continue in between Game of Thrones. But I I think I speak for all of us when I say that it was super fun to get back into this universe. Uh, even though Joanna, I wanted to stop a moment and it, like I let people uh, get us like an idea of how busy your summer is going to be. What what shows are you currently recapping? Um. <laughs> Well, American Gods is almost over <laughs> very okay. soon. Twin Peaks and Game of Thrones. That's about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, hand, just, just Twin Tale. Peaks and Game of Thrones. And <laughs> uh, I have to be ready to write about The Leftovers and Fargo at a moment's notice. And yeah, anyway. I mean, but it's my Yeah, job, and like so. you aren't like helping plan any conventions or any... Listen, guys, now that we've launched our, now that Vanity Fair has launched a Star Wars cover, my life is going to get exponentially easier, so. Oh, nice. uh, Yeah, go to StarWars.com, StarWars.com, you can go there, but you should go to VanityFair.com and see the Star Wars coverage that, like, made my life kind of a living hell for a little while, but now it's up for everyone's enjoyment, yay! Yay, it's got a bunch of pictures. I enjoyed that period of your life. Yeah, no, and there was also was like late night chats from Joanna asking about the color of kyber crystals, and you know that's that's always nice. Oh yeah, I I like r- like squeezed Dave dry of <laughs> Star Wars uh, arcane Star Wars knowledge to help me out. It was really he's just Dave's just the best. Neil is also the best, but maybe not quite as obsessed about Star Wars as Dave is. So yeah, I'll take. Well, it. now it's about to go back. It's it's about to go back the other way, where you guys have all the textual knowledge, and I'm flailing around in crazy town, being like, "What sigils are? Oh man, and what rewatching yes. season one? Sigils. It was crazy, yeah. And the houses and the way they try to world build in between. But I'm getting way ahead of myself because there's even bigger Game of Thrones news this week. We got the season seven trailer that is chock full of trailer goodness, Neil. And maps, which I was psyched about. <laughs> There's at least two maps, maybe three maps. I am, am very happy about Westerosi cartography, uh, in part because I think it's been a while since the show has tried to stop and re-world build about the overall stakes, but not important. Neil, you broke this down for Film School Rejects, and Joanna broke it down for Vanity Fair. I did not break it down, so let's start with Neil. What's the big takeaways from the season seven trailer. Sure. Um, before we get into this, I have something to say. Yeah. I would like to just take a moment and pour one out for the, the fact that you can't say off season two. I, I was about to say that. I wanted to say that earlier when we, when you started the intro and you it didn't say very it, weird. My heart was like, ah, I miss it. <laughs> I, know. I miss it already. Off um, season two. Maybe you can say it just for us, Dave, and then edit it out later. <laughs> No? Okay. <laughs> we all just well, have to get back into the swing of things. Weird. It's like we couldn't go back and listen to those episodes and hear him say it. Um, anyway, this Game of Thrones trailer is interesting. Uh, as you mentioned, numerous maps. Also, a bunch of locations that we've seen already, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, how we're going to get new perspectives on 
places like Dragonstone, and we're probably going to get new perspectives on King's Landing, and um, you know, and then there's just a bunch of like woods and stuff. Uh, but a very interesting trailer uh, that sets up what I found fascinating about it was that it sets up Cersei as the center of this new war that is coming, the Great War. Which we know not to be true. We know the Great War is between the living and the dead. The Literally, the last trailer told us that. But as far as Cersei's concerned, she is now surrounded by enemies. And in the... Let's see. Let's, I'm, I'll go through it, and then you guys can tell me what you think about this. In the east... Right? In the east? Yes. Mm-hmm. In the east, she is flanked by Daenerys and her now humongous army uh, that involves the Unsullied, the Dothraki, uh, some Varys, the Dornish, some Ironborn. Uh, She's basically got, like, all kinds of people. And they're all wearing three dragon brooches, which the three dragon thing, I'm sure, will come in handy later. Um, Stay tuned. Uh, From the west, she's got the other Ironborn, because Uncle Euron's still kicking around, and we assume that he's made a hundred ships by now, so they're, someone's going to pay the iron price. From the south was an interesting one, because it's just somebody sharpening a blade. We have to assume that maybe that's the tip of a spear. Uh, I didn't... There was nothing recognizable about that, but the show doesn't seem very proud of Dorne, so I think we're not going to get a whole lot of that until, you know, maybe deep into a couple episodes or until it's dying time until it's dying time that's true and then in the north they just showed a picture of Arya on a horse in the woods which i thought was fascinating because it didn't really identify Jon snow and his ilk as a threat they sort of have their own thing going on um so that'll be fascinating to see them work that out but also i think Arya is not going south so there's that and then of course uh, for some reason, Cersei is having a map painted on the floor of, uh, I, I want to say this is the same courtyard where uh, the last the, time we saw it, the, the mountain, mountain was like... Yeah, killed those sparrows. Yeah. So <laughs> they washed away the blood and they made a really maybe, fancy map. Maybe the blood doesn't wash out and she had to paint over it. <laughs> She's like, la, 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 nothing to see here. Just a continent. Would, it's fine. That would be the most Cersei thing to do. It's <laughs> like, well, we got to just, just paint a map over it. It's fine. Um, and then a bunch of other stuff happened. Um, I'm curious as to what you guys thought. Otherwise, I will literally just talk about this for 40 minutes by myself. <laughs> Uh, Joanna. Um, yeah. Okay. So Neil and I actually agreed that the coolest shot, you know, I rewatched this over and over again. And the coolest shot, the the shot that caught my eye over and over again was what Neil likes to call Dothraki parkour. Horse Lord Uh, parkour. Horse Lord parkour. (laughs) Dave, uh, is likening it more to rodeo stunts. Um, Which is fine. Rodeos are cool. Yeah, and it did. I mean, you know, Dave's right. When I saw it, it reminded me of that moment in The Magnificent Seven when Denzel Washington does a similar like stunt where he like hops on the side of his horse and rides along for a while. And I like as soon as I thought about that, I was like, because I got so excited. I was like, we haven't. This is this episode. We're going to be talking a lot about season one where the Dothraki are great, and then they haven't. It's like make the, the Dothraki great again. They have not been great since season one. Um, but uh, uh, but then as soon as I thought of that Denzel Washington thing, I was like, uh, but that movie was pretty trash. So one great horse stunt does not 
a whatever make. But it, but we do know, or we think we know, that we're going to see a big battle with, and this trailer backs it up, with Dothraki and Ironborn and blah, 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 and everyone fighting each other. And so to see the and Dothraki... a bunch of Lannister soldiers dying. Oh, yeah. That, and, and That's so all over the trailer. To see the Dothraki sort of fighting more than, you know, the two seconds that we got at the... Um, the Battle of Marine, where they just sort of like stormed up to a doorway and that was it, um, is kind of exciting. And, um, but the more I think, the more significant scene, I mean, I, I'm like, I'm like, should we spoil things? And I'm like, wait, we're out in Star Wars spoilers. Um, the more <laughs> significant scene to me, I think, is is one between Littlefinger and, and Jon Snow in what appears to be the Winterfell. I mean, actually, is definitely the Winterfell Crips uh, right next to the statue of Lyanna Stark, uh, which seems to be sort of the moment that we've all been waiting and, and speculating over. Is like, when is Jon Snow going to find out who his real parents are? And it seems like it's going to be Littlefinger's the one to tell him. Like, we had a, a few candidates. Like, we thought maybe Uncle Benjamin might do it. You know, like, we had some ideas. And Littlefinger was definitely on the list. But from that moment in the trailer, it really feels to me like Littlefinger is doing it. And the reason Littlefinger would do it is, I think, not be even though he's a bastard, not being Ned's son, I think, would destabilize. Um, like, being half-dragon would destabilize John's position in the north i have a question though yeah wouldn't it be a more game of thrones thing to do especially what we might call late stage game of thrones uh which is the detached more detached from the books thing for them to have a conversation in front of the liana stark thing that's completely not about that (laughs) Uh, like for them for them to just be like hey you guys think this is gonna happen it's not happening (laughs) <laughs> like you're maybe like, they're talking you're still about mad like, about the game aren't you? Um, <laughs> yeah, I haven't even had time to recharge my anger about that. <laughs> it could be, yeah, you're right. It definitely could be. And and like, well, how I came to that conclusion is uh, when I was doing my write up, I was like, okay, so Arya seems to be heading back to Winterfell, and when she gets there, like her family's going to be a little fucked up because obviously we've got Littlefinger pouring poison in Sansa's ear, and we've got John fighting with Littlefinger. Uh, and then I was like, I was like, oh, I wonder why they'd be fighting. Oh, <laughs> Littlefinger probably just told him some news he's upset to hear about. So, um, you know, you're right. But at the same time, I do think it's in keeping with Littlefinger's plan to sort of destabilize John and put and prop Sansa up in his place. Uh, here's so, another question. Mm-hmm. Re Arya, do you think and at this point, I think I'm just a Game of Thrones nihilist. When it comes to season seven, do you think that they would dare have Arya show up after John had like left to go off somewhere else? A thousand percent, I do. Yeah, because they're <laughs> they're like we can save that reunion for eight. Right, because how dare they? Uh, they why would they have a reunion between two characters who had actually spoken to each other on screen before? <laughs> Crazy versus, versus Sansa and John, who like had never had no relationship. Right. Uh, yeah. But also, we, do you think Arya is just going to try and murder Sansa the first time she sees her? Because I don't remember them having a good time ever. Well, I, I mean, yeah, we just rewatched season one. We know that they didn't have a good time, but like, <laughs> I do think that by the time Arya gets back to Winterfell, uh, and I think she will see Sansa and Bran, and I think that will be a sort of like Stark kid reunion sort of situation. And then their bastard brother will show up in season eight, is my guess. 
So. Mm. Yeah, and we I mean, we're pretty the the John leaving Winterfell thing. Um I don't think we see John anywhere else but the north in this trailer, but we do see Melisandra at Dragonstone. So. Right, um, watching some in some sort of indiscriminate figures, nondescript figures walking toward Dragonstone, which could be Targaryen people, could be someone else that she would want to keep an eye on. We don't know. Uh, Dave, what did like what were your takeaways from the from the trailer? Um basically all those things. I'm trying to think about what we we're missing out on. Uh, I remember just initially being psyched that we're gonna see more of Dragonstone, which I knew, but especially since they are including the map room, which we've seen before. And previously that was like the all of Dragonstone. Table in all of Westeros. You mean is yeah. the map room table. Stannis's fuck pad. Yeah. There was a smoke baby made on that map. <laughs> Um, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, uh, there's uh, Sir Robert Strong, right? That's what we're calling Zombie Mountain. Uh huh. And sure. he's got cool new black black armor. Yeah, cool. which yeah I think in the show this though, week. in the show they don't. They, he's just still Gregor. Uh, I think they used his name, but I could be wrong. Go ahead. And then uh, uh, we got an arm that we've all decided is Jorah pre getting whatever help he's going to get. If he's uh, going to get got, help. If Sorry, he's going to get help. That has grayscale uh, crawl, crawling down his forearm and over his knuckles. It looks a little slimy, which yeah. I don't remember grayscale being. Yeah, it looks like it's drooling. Like Maybe Ooh. he's like in the midst of a cure. You know how like when cancer patients, they give you chemo, you look way worse because chemo like kills a bunch of cells in your body? So like maybe mm. this is like Westerosi chemo where like it looks worse and then it just falls off and he's fine. <laughs> Westerosi chemo. <laughs> uh, but yeah, other than that, uh, we got a big what giant dragon, Gi- giant dragon, huge but- dragon. So the the big takeaways that I had were huge dragon, sea battle. Um, the other takeaways that I had that I am now forgetting: huge dragon, sea battle. Brienne is in Winterfell. There is something else now that I can't um, remember. A li- I think it's a listener. I, I don't imagine that anyone else would be like Johnny in the spot tweeting at me about Game of Thrones, but I think it was a listener. And I can't remember who at this moment. Sort of sent over the trailer and was like, uh, <laughs> "Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't this a show that used to have some subtlety to it?" And that's like it's <laughs> a pretty it's a pretty harsh take, but I don't know that I can like really disagree with it because this to me looks like a trailer for um, the best action movie of the summer. And there's nothing wrong with the best action movie of the summer necessarily, but you know we'll get into it as we talk about season one. But especially in light of season one, which was a lot of like moody character scenes, <laughs> the oh that dragon's big, oh there's fire, blah blah, oh I zombies like that the show has become. Um, it's not a bad show; it's just such a different show. And right. I think the, the show I think used the, to have uh, three more episodes per season and like 150 more important characters. Yeah. That are all dead now. Yeah. <laughs> but also the willingness to experiment. Well, I, I feel like I'm blowing some of my like season one commentary, but like basically for us to be completing this season one rewatch, or in the case of Dave, blowing into season two. Um, 
right. Hey, nobody knows that except for you. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and right when uh, the trailer dropped, really just does highlight how much Game of Thrones now is about spectacle, which is something that I wind up a lot about last season. Um, and then people are like, well, you hate the show. Why do you talk about it? And I don't hate the show. It's just, uh, it just is remarkably different. So That's true. They had to, they had to spend four seasons putting the pieces in place and now we have to watch the pieces do what they were meant to do in the end and we that's all know. going to happen very quickly we don't know that because I mean we know we know that Weiss and Benioff know the bare bones of what George is going to do but we don't know that they're necessarily going to like you know this is this is the nature of adaptation uh, something I will say there's a scene in the trailer right that I talked about where John shoves Littlefinger up against the wall and then someone on Twitter pointed out to me that that's exactly what Ned did to Littlefinger outside the brothel and it's like it's a pretty close approximation of Ned throwing Littlefinger up against the wall of the brothel versus John throwing Littlefinger up against the wall of the crypt um, which is a nice I mean they do this all the time on Game of Thrones this is a nice little like 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 uncle like son moment but um, the the oh, what did I want to say about that Oh, oh, uh, the reaction that I saw of people were like, oh, yeah, John's finally going to make Littlefinger pay for what he did in season one. And I'm like, yeah, no, he's not. No, he might. <laughs> he actually, I mean, John might not, but like Littlefinger, I think, is going to get got this season. But maybe I liked Game of Thrones better when it was a show where Littlefinger wins. And it's Ooh. not the Starks get their revenge on Littlefinger for betraying their dad. Because that's a different show. Rooting for the good guys. You know, and, and this is something we talked about a lot about last season, like Sansa sicking the dogs on, on Ramsey and stuff like that. And they're like, well, this is this is the ebb and flow. First, you have to see them be miserable and then you get to see them be victorious. And I'm like, yeah, that makes entire sense to me. I'm not saying it doesn't make sense, but, you know, the whole reason this show caught so many people's attention in the first place is that it subverted that expected narrative. So I think it's actually a more just it's just more traditional to be like, ooh, Littlefinger's going to get got. I think he is going to get got. I will feel some satisfaction when he does, but I will also be like, well, this show used to be, or this story used to be something different, you know? This is true. Maybe it did. Let's find out okay. after this break. It is, it's really fascinating, the the perspective that you gain watching season one while preparing for season seven it's crazy yeah it might be why i was so cranky last year because uh, dave and i dave chen and i did a season one rewatch before season six and uh so that was it was fresh in my mind last year too <laughs> when i'm like this show's so different now right it is it's changed it's evolved significantly in six years seven years well what's it well or we could just start right there let's do it well it's what, been uh, go ahead go ahead what's interesting to me is that uh, I was reading a, a Deadline interview with Weiss and Benioff around season one or season two, maybe. And um, back when they used to give interviews to other outlets. And um, they were saying that... <laughs> Remember the good old days? <laughs> they were saying, I guess their original pitch, like, I bet it was Mike Fleming. Probably Mike Fleming at Deadline was talking to them. And they he was like, the last time you talked to me, you were pitching me the series. You were telling me about the series you're going to do, which was The Sopranos and Middle Earth. And like Weiss and Betty were like, oh, we're so embarrassed by that. Like, that's been haunting us. We don't like that we said that, blah, blah, blah. But that inclination to do The Sopranos 
um, which is not just about like revenge and families feuding, but also these like slow character beats, um, I think is evident in season one and is less evident the more the show goes on. Yeah, that makes sense because it, what the show has evolved from the Sopranos to breaking bad to a Michael Bay movie. Yeah. And I say that lovingly. Sure. I, I enjoy fan. occasional Michael Bay movie pain. And game. Right. So yeah. So it's, it's turned into like summer blockbuster stuff right. and they're just like, now we have to do all this action at the end because this is what we've been building toward. And this is what HBO is paying for. And, uh, I'm sure I, I think it's interesting. You mentioned in the, in the last segment, how, you know, we don't really know what Georgia's ending is going to look like. His will probably be more slow yeah, and not, not literally because it takes time to read things, but more contemplative, I guess. Um, but for this, before we can get to that, yeah. we need to go all the way back <laughs> to season one. Guys, I've prepared for you a recap of things that happened in season one for those of you who were not rewatching it with us. And then Joanna and Dave are going to tell you what I got wrong. Um, can you do it in the Micro Machine Man voice? <laughs> I wish I could do that. <laughs> uh, so here's so what we're discovering as we do this uh, the Rethrones project over the next six weeks is that it's very very difficult to get uh, ten episodes of television into one episode of podcast. So I found a way to break them down. Uh, for my recap, we're going to do it by the seven children that we consider to be George's children. So these characters who are actually still alive. So here's what happened to Bran in season one. Bran gets pushed out a window, takes a long nap, wakes up, doesn't remember stuff, becomes Lord of Winterfell, has a wolf dream about his dead father. <laughs> Daenerys Targaryen gets married or sold off. Falls in love, watches her brother die, has a miscarriage, loses her husband, has three dragon babies, and burns off all of her own clothes. Mm -hmm. Sansa Stark, uh, the little dove, as she's called, Mm. falls in love with Joffrey, lies for him, loses her direwolf, convinces Ned to confess his treason, gets her father killed, faints, tours the Wall of Heads, which at one point included George W. Bush, but does not anymore. Memories. I know. <laughs> Tyrion Lannister, who had a terrible wig in the pilot, but came out flying in the second episode. Uh, Tyrion urinated off the wall, got put on trial for a murder he didn't commit, met Bronn, met Shay, leads mountain clans into battle, gets knocked out before the battle, and then gets a new job at the end. All of that is true, but Tyrion is the one where, like, I want to talk more about all the other things that he did so far of the people that you mentioned. Okay, cool. Uh, I think I feel like we're almost spoiling who is the MVP of the season, but (laughs) we'll come back to that. Uh, Arya Stark starts off uh, by, well, first of all, she gives her sister a dirty look while trying to sew. Uh, But then she shoots an arrow, loses her dire wolf, learns water dancing from Sirio Forel. Kills a stable boy, almost watches her father's beheading, escapes with Yorin, meets Gendry. Oh, Gendry. I know, Gendry. Uh, Jon Snow. Jon Snow asks about his mother, hangs out with Uncle Benjen, makes frenemies with Sir Alistair, more like enemies, makes real friends with Pip, Gren, and Sam, 
saves Lord Commander Mormont from a zombie, gets a new sword, has a vow party in the woods with his friends, and heads out to find Uncle Benjamin in a very triumphant, triumphantly scored sequence. One of the better ones in the whole season. Ain't no party like a vow party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, and then now I will... The significant deaths in season one include a Night's Watch deserter who got beheaded, Westerosi Matt Damon who got eaten, I think eaten, Mostly just killed by a White Walker. Uh, one Knight of the Vale who got tossed out the moon door. The Mountain's Horse, who really didn't deserve it. Sir Hugh, who got stabbed in the neck. Sirio Pharrell, maybe. <laughs> King Robert, who met the uh, bad end of a boar. Cal Drogo, who we all wish we could have back. Ned Stark, and Innocence itself. And mm-hmm. uh, Viserys Targaryen. Oh, right, Viserys. See, I dislike that character so much I forgot that he was even there. I love Viserys. <laughs> <laughs> I love to hate um, Viserys, yeah. These people who uh, died are survived by Catelyn Stark, who is sad, Rob Stark, who is brave, Cersei Lannister, who is mean, Joffrey, who is technically king, Jaime, who is captured, Varys, who is almost always telling the truth, Littlefinger, who is almost certainly always lying, Grandmeister Pycelle, who's just creepy. Lysa Aaron, who is an isolationist and a weird breastfeeder in public, which is totally cool, except the way she does it is just not great. Free the nipple. Okay. Tywin Lannister, who's (laughs) significantly more dashing in his armor in the show than he was in the books. Benjen Stark, who is missing. Ser Jorah, who is very handsome. Five kings and three motherfucking baby dragons. Who show up wow. right at the end. Thank you for your very accurate description of Sir Jorah. Thank you for that. I mean, I there's what other way could you describe Sir Jorah? There's He's no just other way. handsome. He's also, I love I forgot how much I love the fight between him and the, the Dothraki guy at yeah. the like in the last episode or the second to last episode. I don't know, they all run together. So that is your re- fast super fast recap of everything that happened in season one for the most part. <laughs> Yeah, I think that for me, at least with season one, that is sort of in between the cracks of these are all the things that Longview you would pay attention to for sure. For me, season one is like a murder mystery that has like these world building scenes at the end that hint that there might be magic, but not until the end that they like, fuck yeah, there's magic. There's actually the first scene and like the last scene sort of bookend this medieval politics murder mystery with... Hey, magic's real, which I know it's is incredible ca- how little magic there is in the first season. I mean, I kind of wanted to jump in and say that when you were talking about it uh, around the season seven trailer, which is that I think like they're hinting towards it being like this amazing thing. Like the little we do get of who I think is old man only because you guys tell me about other stories she's told in the books. Uh, she, you know, tries to scare Bran with things that we now know we'll probably end up seeing on screen because. It's a gigantic battle movie now, but I it spiders seems... as big as hounds. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the sort of thing you want to hear about, boy? You want to be scared, Bran? You little piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> now Bran's like, I wish I would have got stabbed. <laughs> it sucks. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that it, this ends up. I mean, I mean, there's something about looping in an audience with a murder mystery you could track from episode to episode instead of something like 
I don't know, season five of the show, which ends up just being all of us tracking everybody's misery throughout like an episode, but it doesn't feel like anybody does anything really. So I was happy with the forward momentum of these, even if our main characters sort of act like idiots sometimes. No, I mean, I agree with you to, to sort of put it around who killed John Aaron is, is a great conceit and that's George's conceit pretty much. Right. Um, and Neil, Neil was saying before we started recording, like is season one perfect? And I kind (laughs) of think it might be. (laughs) Well, yeah, because we were in the next segment, we're going to do these awards and we're going to, and we're also going to talk about a lot of like book changes and stuff. Um, but I couldn't find anything that was in the books that I was like, man, I wish they would have done that in the show because the first season is very faithful and all the stuff that they cut away felt, you know, like stuff that was kind of unnecessary. So like, it was just the, the level of adaptation was really good. And they also did to their credit, they did, they kept in the right breadcrumbs that would later pay off to be huge things. Like, like the, the old man stories, you know, they didn't keep them all obviously, but but they kept that part of it in because they were. It was like they were thinking six seasons ahead without knowing that they were going to make six seasons, which is really impressive. Hi, spiders as big as hounds. <laughs> well, there's there's like another line that I didn't notice the first time through because why would you? But there's a ton of little asides about history. Like I think it's uh, uh, Ned's talking to Arya, who's just heard of that. Brands woke up, but he's paralyzed, and he's like, "Well, he could still, you know, grow to be a builder, like Brandon the Builder." And I'm like, "It's just that little aside." And now I'm like, "Hey, I know about that guy now." But before it was just little world building asides, which I enjoy greatly in season one because you don't know which one of those are going to end up feeding into the mystery, and which one of them is just why do I care? What the sigil of all these houses that Brand's getting quizzed on? are but it all ends up it's all gonna end up being important which makes it just really well structured i don't know if it's perfect they're not with the exception of Tyrion getting conked out for so they don't have to shoot the big battle i don't think it makes the most of point of view if we're spending time with one character for a extended amount of time i think the show ends up getting better at that but it does sort of flirt with that with all the daenerys scenes uh, I'm just not sure if it gets all the way there. Can I? Can we? Can I talk about that's in my first sort of like section that we're gonna get. Yeah. To. Can I go? I to feel that? like we're there now. Okay. Oh well, wait, wait, wait one second, because we have to have another break. All right, we're back. Joanna, continue. Okay, so the first section of what we want to talk about, uh, constructed very thoughtfully by Neil Miller, is a section called "What They Changed." what we changed, what changed us sort of about the differences between the books and the, and the show. It's and the, also it's the existential like, crisis. Segment. <laughs> it gets a little bit more like direct and specific later on in this podcast, but this is, yeah, this is a little more esoteric. And yeah, the biggest one that struck me is, is that battle scene, the battle of the green fork where in, you know, the battle exists in the book and in the show, they knock Tyrion out and a uh, battle of whispering wood is off screen in the book, but it's also off screen in the show. So like there are no big battles. And that's the thing is like, 
now Game of Thrones is famous for its battle episode, right? Like episode nine or something like that is going to have a big battle and we're all, you know, who, who are they fighting this time and how, oh, how can they like make it bigger? And we know that from the season seven trailer that like, and even just from that still that they released of Drogon earlier in the week, it's like they, they are like, this battle is even even Michael Bayer than the last battle, guys. Um, <laughs> All of our battles will be on screen. <laughs> but like, but yeah, season one they didn't do it because yeah, exactly what you said. They didn't have the budget, so they sort of found a way to get around it. But also, like, they didn't. Ne- that wasn't the show yet. They didn't need a battle episode. Their big moment is is Baylor, and it's rooted in character. You know, it's it's small. I mean, there's a big crowd scene, but it's small and rooted in character, and and it's told from the point of view of Arya, which is and Ned like the most. Well, sure, yeah, but like the most impressive thing about that scene to me was how they 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 brought you into the Arya POV, Absolutely. which I thought was like so good, so good. Anyway, but but yeah, exa- but that you know that's an adaptive change they made for budgetary reasons, but also sort of is telling about what kind of show this show was in its first season um, versus you know, and and that just ties. I mean, really, everything is just going to tie back to what I was rambling about before, which is like the ways in which the show has has changed significantly, and you know, a lot of people think or or the show has become more of what they want to see they're excited that the that the budget is expanding that the special effects are better and bigger and and more amazing but rewatching this season um i feel like it's it's moving away from what really really got me in the first place so um and piggybacking off of that there is one thing that i found that I would have loved to see in the show that actually would have been a good character piece, but it also would have required them showing the Battle of Green Fork. So I copied this from the wiki uh, so that I wouldn't get it wrong. But in the book, Tyrion Lannister is depicted giving a battle speech, which he does in the show, before riding into the vanguard and fighting a knight whom eventually yields. He is also described as wearing a mishmash of armor instead of his custom suit because his armor is still at Cashley Rock. This causes the audience missing him, spearing a horse with a unicorn helm, the only thing they could find that would fit his head. (laughs) I kind of wanted to see that, and hopefully someday they'll make reference to it, but probably not. (laughs) But that's that's how deep I had to go into the weeds to find something where I was like, "Mm, I do wish that was in the show from the books. Um, Dave, is there anything... I mean, I know you're not... You don't consider yourself a book reader, but... I like from the books. um, No, I know, but, like, is there... I don't know. Any any adaptive changes that you've wikied that you consider of note from season one? Um, I don't think so. I do remember that there was inkling or whispers at some point that the series originally started its King's Landing story with uh, a scene that more directly tied Cersei to the death of John Aaron, and I'm, I mean, it would have ruined the mystery. But I'm kind of sad that that has been lost to the cinematic ages. Maybe we still get it in a flashback. No, there'd be no reason to flashback John Aaron now. Fuck it, it's gone. How would it? How would that ruin the mystery though? Since I mean, yeah, we pretty Cersei's much know not. it's Cersei the whole time. Yeah, that, that's true. So yeah, um, maybe they should have had it. Wait, but it's not Cersei. Wait, it was well. What? No, oh, it's so Lysa. She's Lysa she's, Baelish. That's right. She, we find she's out. She's just there when he dies, and we figure out. I think that she's like complicit in it somehow. I think oh. is how it was. She's not complicit though, right? 
I don't think so. I think it was. I believe that it's Littlefinger and Lysa who killed John Aaron, and like Cersei is concerned about like when when you get that first that scene in episode one, what she's talking to Jamie, her concern is like, what if he told someone before he died? Like she know she knew that John Aaron knew something, and that it was in her best interest that he was gone. But it's not her. It, Cersei's not the one who killed him. Right, because we find out later that it was Lysa. There, that is one of two things that I found in my rewatch of season one that were like, oh, everyone gave up on these ideas. So that seems to have changed because that that scene in the first episode. It's as if they're talking talking around the fact that they just murdered John Aaron, but we now know that they didn't. The other one is John burning his hand, which I may or may not still hold by the end of the series, but I have a feeling it's possible now that we know he's a Targaryen that he may not be able to be burned as quite as easily because it's weird that they made such a big deal about that and then he burns his hand. I don't know. But that's that's he burns his hand in the book, and that's like... That's true. Yeah, George's, well, uh, that's George's. That was before the show decided maybe that all Targaryens are immune to fire all the time, or Daenerys right. is immune to fire all the time. When George's rule is that Targaryens are not immune to fire, it's just that Daenerys oh, God, was. I forgot about George's rules. Yeah, in that scene, because <laughs> welcome back to Star Wars spoilers, where Joanna gets pedantic at people. Um, that scene where she burns hey, Paul Drogo is why people like all that magic was place, happening, so. and that's why she was immune to fire then. So when she was immune to fire last season, it sort of went against George's rules about Targaryens' immunity and fire. So. Well, there's a lot of stuff in the first season that suggests Daenerys knows or is testing that she's immune to fire. But I wanted to clear this up before we moved on. So the actor that played John Aaron's corpse, uh, John Standing, uh, filmed a scene where he was dying and trying to write a letter yeah. confessing the truth about Joffrey's parentage. And Cersei walked in and physically stopped him. That's oh. what I was. That's what I was getting mistaken so she didn't poison him but she did stop him from exposing the truth well that makes sense and i'm I'm pretty sure but i could be wrong even though we just all rewatched it that that scene at the beginning like it seems like they killed john aaron but really what they're talking about is the secret of them like boning each other and the parentage of cersei's children getting out not like we killed someone we have to cover it up it's like our secret is the incest that we done did, not the murder that we done did. Right. Right. Okay. So I would say that scene, I would like to go back in and, uh, that if the rumor that they'd shot Brandon Stark and the mad King for the original pilot, I would have liked that. That, that image exists online. So they definitely shot that, but that's, that's an interesting, that is something very significant that they left out of the first four seasons, which is all the flashback stuff, right? And so, um, uh, you know, because they were like, we're not doing flashbacks until they're like, no, we're doing flashbacks. But um, but Dave, you're saying you you think that, that it would have been better if they had done flashbacks. In well, I think one. specifically the Brandon Stark one, mm-hmm. because they have to mention that like four different times with four different characters before we even realize that it's all the same series of events under the Mad King. So I feel like if you would have really solidified why a couple of these people dislike each other because of kingly honor and betrayed kingly honor, sort of like how we don't really understand what Kingslayer means until 
Jamie explains it to us in a later season, but people use it here with the full venom of what it's supposed to mean. I feel like we would have had a better grasp on that uh, if we had seen just the the Mad King flashbacks. Well, there's that scene where Ned comes to King's Landing, and like one of the first things he does is talk to Jamie in the throne room. One of one of my favorite scenes of the whole series, and you know there. I mean, you're right. We're we're in the first episode, so we're just still trying to figure out like w- what people's names are, even right. But um, you know, there they talk. You know, he's like, you know, did, is that what you told yourself when you like stabbed Eris in the back? And Jamie's like, would have been better if I'd stabbed him in the front and like all this sort of stuff. And and that and there they talk. You're right. It is heavy exposition. Like they talk about Brandon and they talk about Ned's dad and like all the stuff that happened. But it's. It's one of those scenes, it's one of many two-hander scenes that I believe they add to the season because they were short on running time uh, in every episode. They were 10 minutes short, so they had to, Weiss and Benioff had to construct a bunch of two-hander scenes that they just shoved into episode because they had no budget, but they had to fill the runtime. And I believe this is one of them. And uh, it's just such delicious character work from Jamie and Ned establishing who they are and their weaknesses and their strengths. And um, I, you're right that it's exposition, but it's such good exposition versus like uh, the Baelish brothel scene exposition. So. <laughs> I mean, I, I think so, but I don't even think they mentioned that they're actually like lit on fire. I think they just say that like, that's a terrible way to die. Like, I don't, I don't know if we, that might be true. Yeah. Do, like, get into like the burn them all thing even until another series so it's no he says jamie says burn the burn them all thing when robert asks jamie like they're talking he and um, telling war stories yeah they're talking about who they killed first or whatever (laughs) like guys do and uh and then yeah and then jamie does does do the whole burn them all thing i do think it's a credit to the writing that some of the best sequences from season one some of the stuff that really sticks out is just two people talking in an empty yeah. throne room. Because then exactly. there's the, the multiple various little finger scenes that are mm-hmm. just so juicy. Um, okay, so the other question we had was, uh, wait, so if you could do anything differently in season one, what would it be? I think, Joanna, you had one more note, which I totally agree with. So I wanted to make sure you got to that one. It's the Roz stuff, which, like, if you've listened to the podcast about Game of Thrones for (laughs) as long as I've been doing it, you know that I am not a fan of Roz. Um, You know, who was supposed to, like, Esme Bianco, who plays Roz, and and no knock on Esme Bianco, because she's a fine actress, great on the TV series The Magicians. Um, She was cast as someone called Redheaded Prostitute in the first episode. (laughs) And then they decided that they liked her so much, they wanted to, like, sort of expand her role. And give her a name. And narratively, they they felt like they needed someone to, like, make this journey and then do other, you know, like, they needed her for narrative reasons. And in subsequent, I was reading some interviews today, actually, where Weiss, Benioff, and Brian Cogman all sort of bragged about how proud they were of the Raw's creation and how they thought it was a really smart way to handle some of the things that they These had These are to also dudes who have bragged about uh, Ollie, so GTFO. That's all I'm saying. I thought that was Dave Hill. Isn't Ollie Dave Hill's fault? And they um, all seem pretty proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, Ollie is really just Roz 2.0 with his clothes on. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I I just feel like now they don't 
they realize that they don't need Roz. Roz is like not just a narrative device, but like a really super sexy narrative device. And I feel like the show is actually a little bit better. You know, uh, I've talked about how the show is leaning more towards spectacle now, but I think the show is a little bit better, maybe because we probably shame num shame nunned them about it. But like, is a little bit better about oh, this person's taking their clothes off because you want to see tits, you know, um, they're, tr- they try to make the nudity and that sort of stuff more organic to the scene you're watching and not just like TNA, TNA for TNA's It sake. does, it does feel like, you know, you mentioned how they had to pad some of the episodes. It does feel like a lot of that is filler. Now, when you go back and really watch it, like the little finger scene where he's got Roz and the other girl and he's like coaching them on being prostitutes. Um, I didn't remember it going on as long as it does. Like when I watched it again, I was like, this is going on forever. Like this doesn't (laughs) feel like, like now on game of Thrones, we still get some nudity. We still get, you know, some sexy time, except a lot of it's just very hurried, but like that, that scene goes on forever. And, um, maybe it was just, they, they tried to pad it out and it was good for the brand at that point in season one it was good for the game of thrones we're gonna chop off some heads and show you a lot of tits brand right and i feel like now they're like we don't need to do that we got we already got you hooked we don't have to kind of debase ourselves a little bit like we did in season one um in season two but uh you know and that scene that scene is sort of where um you know, we get the the term sex position from, right? Because uh, Baelish is telling the story of like, he, you know, him growing up, right? And we need to know right, that. And him fighting uh, Brandon Stark. Right. And we need to know that about Baelish. It's important to know Baelish's character, but like, it's just sad that they thought we needed like two ladies, you know, going to town on each other in order to like keep our attention in that scene. I wouldn't go all the way to sad. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what's under, underestimating the audience, right? It's my internal dude. It's like, well, it's not that sad. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it it does underestimate the intelligence of the audience. But again, it was very on brand at the time. Mm-hmm. So, hey, we just just get yeah, a fan produced short of that actual story this week, right? Yeah, which is really good, by the way. I have yet, to, I haven't bookmarked, but I've yet to sit down and digest the whole thing. But I'm into it. I haven't watched it either. It's the story of like how Littlefinger it's got like, Hellas yeah, Guard like by Brandon Stark and stuff. It's basically a Brandon Stark short film. Oh, cool. Um, but anyway, I agree with you on the Roz stuff. I don't miss it, and it feels weird now going back to watch it again. Especially how she ended, too. Like the knowing. It's very unceremonious. How it all ended, you're just like, oh, because like what you know, there's a certain point when you're like, oh, Roz is a bookkeeper now, little finger. Oh, moving up in the world, Roz. Okay, and then it's like, no, you're just a naked lady who's brutally murdered to prove a point about how bad a dude is. And I'm like, "Mm, all right, that's good. (laughs) Um, cool. Okay, what did we like? Is there one more thing that we liked about the rewatch? Um. Yeah. The thought. Ex- uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dave. Oh uh, no, no. I'm interested in what you have to say first. Oh, I just. I'm, I feel like I just monologued for a while, but I will just say that <laughs> this prompt was my idea, right? Which is like something you remember not liking that you like when you watch it now, um, and mm-hmm, then you know that right. speaks to like we're all six or seven years older than we were when we watched it the first time. We're different people, et cetera, et cetera. I will say that every time I rewatch this show, and I would say this is probably my fourth time through, probably, 
uh, I love the Lannisters more. And I, you know, when you start the series and you're like, Lannister's bad, Stark good. But, you know, knowing what we know now about Jaime and Cersei, like every single thing. And and the fact that Nicola Costa-Waldo and, and Lena Headey are so good in everything they do. Um, just every single thing that Cersei and Jaime say in season one, I was just like, yes, you're great. I love you. <laughs> so... Me reevaluating the Lannister twins. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because mine is similar, mm. and but mine is more with Tywin Lannister. Like every moment that Charles dances on screen in the show, yeah. is delicious. Sure like is. just living deliciously, and <laughs> I feel like we. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> As I watched it the first time, when I originally watched it, because I actually had watched the first season without reading the books, I very much underestimated how important Tywin Lannister was. Like, he just felt like this background presence, and then he kind of just shows up, and it really wasn't until, like, season three, where you're really like, oh, this guy really is running shit. And it's so much better uh, to 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 go back and watch him again because he's just so good from moment one. Um, I feel the same way about Varys. Like knowing Varys's like long game uh, makes a lot of his early stuff make a lot more sense. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm just gonna go with that. Even though I feel like my answer is like the lamer version of that, which is that knowing <clears throat> the endpoints of all these people made me a lot more attentive to their beginning points and characters that I hated or that I thought were boring suddenly were given a full background, which is like, you know, I understand would be your guys's or a book reader's initial experience. Cause I know sometimes that's happened to me with new star Wars where I'm like, that's that thing from that book. <laughs> so uh, I had the, uh, the watered down version of that where that's that thing I remember from being obsessed with it, what it becomes you know, five years down the line. I am curious to see if that happens with Stannis. I never liked Stannis as a character, book or screen, but I wonder if I'll appreciate it more knowing that there's an end point to it. It does make a lot of the things that Melisandre says to him more interesting, but we'll save that for we'll get to next that. week. Yes, but, next week. But Dave, like, so what's a boring character from season one that like, now you're like, oh... What's a boring character from season one that now I'm like, uh, yeah. uh, Bran? <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> like, he's having prophetic dreams in a world that, as far as I know, is without magic. And he just wakes up and he's like, I don't remember the one thing that my character was supposed to remember, and I can't walk. And then it's like he, you know, makes weird decisions being carried around Winterfell and wants to die. Bran's really boring in season one. But knowing that he actually is magic makes me pay more attention to what he's being told and what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, also around. on that list, Sir Alistair Thorne. Also kind oh, of on yeah. that list. Not Ollie, because he's not around yet. Pip, no. for sure. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> You're All fine, right. Pip. You're fine. So I think it's time for us to give away some Georgie Awards. Right. Which is something that we've done in the past, right? We did this once, right? I didn't just make up the fact that we did this once. You in guys my mind. did it you guys did it with patches, like okay. when I was gone. Oh I yeah, just... people love that episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should definitely keep doing things that we did with during that episode. 
Um, anyway, so the Georgie Awards, uh, for every one of the first six seasons, we're going to give away uh, in a few categories. Some of these categories are actually going to change as we go along because some of the, these things change. Uh, but the first thing we're going to do is best death. And uh, this is just sort of the, I don't know, most memorable, however you want to define best death. Uh, and we'll start with Joanna. Um, I had the obvious one down, which is Ned Stark, because sure. it's like, how do you compete with that? But then I changed it. I mean, I'm going to talk about Ned plenty more before this episode's over. Don't you worry. But the reason why I changed it is because um, rewatching the pilot, I really love the cold open with the Night's Wash guys. And, you know, this is something that every Game of Thrones, uh, I think, um, yeah, every Game of Thrones book starts with a POV character that either then dies or it's just like someone who's not back. That's, this is George special is the first chapter or the prologue or whatever is a POV of a non-main character. And I always think that that's a really fun thing. You kind of don't even know who you're with until like halfway through the chapter and all this sort of stuff. And, um, and, and it just feels like a kind of exploration of a side character that Game of Thrones, the show would not do now. I don't feel like we get a lot of like quirky side characters. Um, I could be wrong, but side characters who won't be like, like they're out of time, you know, the, the, is the most charitable interpretation. They're out of time. They don't have time for like quirky side characters that are not going to like mean a lot later. These guys mean a lot because they establish the, the white Walker threat. Their death means a lot. But, um, I was thinking of then in the finale of the season, this isn't a death, but there's that whole sequence with the bard who like sings this whole song that's insulting to Cersei about Robert Baratheon, blah, blah, blah. And then Joffrey has his tongue cut out. It's really there to kind of show you Joffrey's a terrible little shitty tyrant, but we already knew that he just killed Ned and it just spends a lot of time with his bard who then we never see again. It's not Marillion. It's just a random bard. And so Space for people like that, I think, is really interesting and, and why I vote for that opening death. Nice. Dave, do you have a best death? Best death. I mean, I, I think Viserys' death is oh, probably is the best. Good. I forget, forget about Viserys a lot. <laughs> well, the only reason I'd say my two, the two deaths that come back to me the most in season one are actually both because of audio cues. Viserys because of the clunk his head makes when he falls down. Yes. <laughs> and then the baby that's killed off screen uh, has such a specific, uh, one of the Roberts bastards has such a specific. Oh, that's in season two. Save that one. That's in season week. two. Okay, I'll, say, I'll save that. Good sound, though. <laughs> think about that sound. <laughs> baby dying. also... Oh, no, wait, no, that's something else. I was going to say something about Serio, but... Um, there's there... a really... There's a great sound cue with the Serio thing, but it sounds like a Wilhelm scream. Yeah, there's like a generic cry. It's like, that could be anyone. Okay. <laughs> right. We know it's not Sir Marin, unfortunately. Uh, Neil, what is your answer? Yes, okay, so mine is the guy, the just sort of indiscriminate dude who is going to stab Bran. I think in the, what, the second episode? Yeah, the assassin. And really why I love it is not necessarily because, it, one, it's super gory and Summer rips out his throat, but it also made me like tear up because I was like, because the, they do the shot where he kills him and 
Catelyn's just sitting there and she's like, her hands are all bloody and she's in shock. And the dog just gets back up on the bed and lays down. And I'm just like, oh shit, the dog's going to be with him until the dog gets killed, which is something <laughs> we lived through last season. So it like, it was like post-traumatic stress combined with like, it's like, oh my God, I, that dog, it's such a sweet moment. It's, it's one of those knowing the end game makes the beginning more interesting things. So, um, but also it's, it's one of the, it's the first like super brutal death. I mean, I know the guy in the opening gets his head chopped off, but like this one is like blood soaked crazy. And, uh, and I really like it. I think that that's a very underrated scene and it, it's another one of those little breadcrumbs that is just there in the first season where you're just like, man, that is going to come back to just punch you in the heart later when that dog dies saving Bran. Everything about the dire wolves when they could actually afford to show the dire wolves is pretty heart wrenching. <laughs> oh, we should say we should say R.A.P. The real wolf who played Ghost died this yeah. last week. Um, and I, oh. I almost said something like I, I don't want to like Downer. I don't want to like get entangled in like the sadness of of an animal dying. But I almost said something snarky like not like they were going to use him anyway because they forgot <laughs> that even if fucking exists. But um, but yeah, the scene. I mean, the scene in the pilot where they find the direwolf puppies. I mean, come on, that's great television. Yeah, and Theon being such a little asshole and wanting to kill direwolf puppies and Brand being so adorable, and then John finding. The the albino one and picking it up and just sort of like not being affectionate towards it just sort of being like what is this i guess i have this now yeah Uh, and and ned being super fatherly like there's a lot of that in season one ned being like basically you're gonna have to walk in and feed it yourself like any dad would say and uh yeah and then rob just being um i was watching some of these episodes with with my roommate who loves game of thrones and she's just like rob is just this gemstone of a human being and it pains me to watch him exist and i was like he really you know that is really one of the secret some of the secret sauce of the Red Wedding is how great of a character Rob is. Yeah. Like you just root for that guy the whole way. You really do. Um, but we'll get to that when we get to season three. Uh, if you had to pick a most memorable line, what would it be, Dave? You could start us off this time. Uh, you think my life is such a precious thing to me that I would trade my honor for a few more years of what? Because that is literally the last time that someone makes that decision in Game of Thrones. I love that line. Yeah. I love that line. That line and, and sort of um, Eamon's speech, because it's in that, that video that I watched a thousand times. Oh, like it's easier for, it's easy for a man to do his duty when yeah. it's like he's not called upon. Yeah. Like, yeah go ahead. Um, that that video that I was touting last season that like someone put together a super cut of all the scenes that show you know that Lyanna is John's father and how how it like was from the beginning and that that interaction of Ned with Varys in in the black cells and then also Aemon's speech it's they're both about honor so sort of to establish you know cuz he's like do you think it's easy to do the things like you know to not go fight for your, you know, because John wants to go fight for Rob, to not go fight for your brother. I didn't go fight for my brother. This is the vow we took. These are the, you know, it's easy to, anyway. Those really hit me hard watching this time. That's a, I think that's a great choice, Dave. Uh, Thank you. Joanna, what's yours? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to be like, good job, you picked the right one. Okay. Um, 
Oh, war war was easy. War was easier than daughters, which is a Ned Stark line that I love. Very um, Ned Dadness. This is this ties into I'll talk more about this, but just like how much I love how much a season one is it's like this domestic story of a of a single dad with two daughters trying to make it in the workplace. <laughs> She doesn't like my doll, and the other one wants to be a boy. <laughs> you know, because that that episode also—that's the episode that also ends with. I mean, Sansa's being a little shit about the like. He's like, he's so sweet when he gives her that doll, and he's like, it's the same one that you know Princess Marcella has. Do you love it? And then Sansa's being a little brat, and then his lovely scene with Arya in her bedroom, which is just like killer. And then the end, you know, when he hires Serial. Uh, Sorry, motorcycle just went by. Um, where you hire Sirio, and then you also hear like the the, the sound of wars. Are, uh, it's just Dad Ned is very very important to the series. Mm-hmm. So nice. Uh, and mine is a Daenerys line because what I forget, and we're about to live through this with the next two seasons, is that Daenerys gets super boring for a super long time, um, but. The her season one arc is really great. How she goes from essentially being sold off like a piece of meat to being a, very much the victim of her marriage to falling in love to then asserting herself. And there's the line when Viserys dies where she's like, "He was no dragon. Fire cannot kill a dragon." It's mm-hmm. basically like that. That's her kind of turning moment where she realizes that she's the real last dragon. And she may not have figured it out completely yet. You know, she doesn't necessarily go jumping into a fire pit. But this, you you really do see the evolution. And I thought that it's also sort of this great evolution in Amelia Clark's performance throughout the first season. Because she's real stiff at the beginning. And by the end of the season, she really, like, she just starts to just come out of her shell, which I thought was just great. So that that line just works. Yeah. Also, it's, you know, it's cool because Viserys is, he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Never liked that guy. He's actually, it's funny, I made mention of this on Twitter, and I feel a lot of people agreed with me. There are reasons to miss Joffrey and Ramsay and there's another person that I hate that everyone hated that I can't remember. Who am I missing? Who's the other bad guy? Doesn't matter. Joffrey and Ramsey. Yeah. There's no reason to miss Viserys. He's just I disagree. Shitty. I disagree. Really? I really yeah, I really love Joffrey and, and Viserys in um I think of them as as a as two of a kind. They're just these shitty terrible petty people and that's not the kind of villain we have on game of thrones anymore we have like uh a king of ice zombies <laughs> no. right we have instead like of, pure evil yeah instead and then of i mean pure and, evil and then there's like cersei who's not who's not like pure evil at all like cersei's kind of like this sympathetic stealing her spine bitch like you know we love rooting for cersei but but joffrey and viserys was just like um, you know, like our freaking president, just like terrible, <laughs> terrible humans, terrible men, petulant just, children. The yeah, the 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 evil deeds of petty men and and women too, if you want. And um, that's that's why I like it. It's just it's rooted. It, like Viserys is recognizable to me. 
Hmm. His okay. his villainy versus the Night's King. I'm like, what is this massive wall of evil? I don't know. You know? Yeah. I uh, I mean, I get it. That makes a lot of sense. I just gonna... I spent all of the Viserys scenes in my rewatch. Like, oh god, just kill this guy already. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna use this as a way to pivot into our next topic because I pick Jack Gleason who plays Joffrey as my MVP of season one, because it isn't until the last episode that you actually realize he's a sociopath because of his, I don't know, his face and his performance and the fact that he is allowed to make mistakes in front of Robert and get slapped around by Tyrion early in the season is really much more of a ramping effect. And he doesn't come out as like a full on sociopath, I don't think, until season two. But the sudden sharp turn that power leads into cruelty, I'm going to give to child actor who made me believe he was like uh, neutrally a weird character I was supposed to laugh at and then suddenly steps in to become the villain in one episode. Mm, That's a good one. Yeah, no, and it, it's. I think you're right, and and sort of watching the way that Cersei indulges him, like the thing she tells him, like that great scene where she's like, you know, if you want painted horrors, you will have painted horrors because you are my precious son, and you will just get whatever you want. And you're like, oh, how to build a monster? <laughs> Ten easy steps by Cersei <laughs> Lannister. Uh, this is not going to end well. Um, yeah, so that's a that's a good pick. And Jack Leeson's great. I was so sad when Joffrey died. Uh, spoiler yeah. alert for that is one that. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's three weeks from now, Joanna. Um, um, okay, so Joanna, the MVP is meant to be a character, an actor, a writer, a director, DP, whatever. I'm Who's giving, your I'm giving it to Weiss and Benioff because as hard as I am on them now, I want to give them credit then for a couple things. One is um, doing the show in the first place, loving the book and wanting to do the show and convincing George that they were the people to do it. Um the other is sh- they shot a shitty pilot. All their friends told them they were shitty, and they fixed it. The pilot is great by their reports and everyone else's reports. Their original was bad. So I really respect people who do something bad and figure out how to fix it. Um, and then sort of what I mentioned before in terms of those those little two-handers that they, like, scrambled to write and shove in to stuff up the holes of this season, like... Uh, I know people don't like the scene where Cersei talks to Robert Baratheon, Robert about like their child because they either feel it makes Cersei too sympathetic or it introduces oh, no, it's a this great scene. introduces this inconsistency of like um, Cersei losing her child with him like that's not in the books so what is this and all this sort of stuff. Um, but I love that scene and I love all of those scenes um, and and I, that that deadline article that I mentioned. Um, or Weiss and Benioff are, are, are talking about this thing that they had to do. They're they, they are very proud of it. And they were talking about how it really felt like the first time their adaptation kind of... Uh, it's how I feel about episode four of American Gods this week. This first time the adaptation really felt like something they were owning versus just like sort of very faithfully adapting what George had written. And, and I think that was the right sentiment at the time. Like they were writing these scenes that were very grounded in character. They weren't like big plot altering, altering scenes. They were just like, let's write some fun dialogue that really is connected to these characters that we understand very well. And I feel like they've lost the, you know, 
it's not their fault that they don't have books to adapt anymore. But I also feel like in certain ways they've lost the thread on their understanding of some of the characters in, in some of the ways in which they've adapted this. So I feel like that really good thing that they did in season one is now sort of run amok. But back in season one, they just really nailed the things that they add. Oh, like the Tywin, the Tywin, uh, you know, butchering that stag is something that they added last minute to drought the running time. That's one of the greatest introductions of a character ever. So kudos to them. Kudos to Weiss and Benioff for the work that they did on season one of Game of Thrones. Nice. Uh, Mine's related to that. Sort of. (laughs) Is it the stag? (laughs) Oh, man, that stag. Uh, I mean, it could be Charles Dance, but it's not. It's uh, it's old Germ himself, George R. R. Martin. Um, Because you're right. Everything you said about Weiss and Benioff is spot on in how they adapted it. But I think that the shows, the first season, there's two things that struck out to me that, that feel very George. One is all the breadcrumbs that pay off so much later that are just so beautifully woven into the story. Like, he was very, very meticulous in in making it all work. Um, and then, so it creates this, I think a lot of the best stuff, a lot of this character work sort of rests, is them resting on this foundation that he built with the first book. So, you know, you, you I think... And it, it, it would be easy. He's like the LeBron James of Game of Thrones. You could give him the MVP for like all the seasons that were directly adapted from books. Mm-hmm. So, but I think the first one is the most important because there's a lot of vision in there. Like I was so surprised at how much is in there that is stuff that is just like how many times they talk about Lyanna Stark and all this stuff that has just recently paid off or is about to pay off in season seven. Uh, you really have to give a lot of credit to George for that. So he's my he's my season one MVP. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So the next one is Dave's expertise. Yes. Um, oh. Which is uh, best and worst polygons. So Dave, we're going to let you take the lead on this one. What was the best use of polygons and the worst use of polygons in season one? Uh, it's hard to call the best, but I'm going to say for sure the worst is Vias Dothrak that we actually go to, and I'd forgotten that we go to it because that's how poorly it's established slash matte painted, whatever the hell they do with their wooden horse arch, uh, which gets, you know, revisited later on in the series and actually feels like a giant place, but here feels like one tent with no room to even do matte paintings in the background for some reason. So it's all at night, and this, the tent cities lead to the, another tent. It's, it's not great. Uh, they could have expanded uh, that out. And I guess best... Oh, I don't know. I think that a lot of the... Um, oh, man. I don't know. I kind of want to go with the however they accomplished both polygon and practical effects, uh, the mountain beheading his horse, uh, just because mm, that's a good one. that it's so visceral. Uh, I remember watching it the first time when it happened and it doesn't get less visceral when it goes. Plus I don't want to pick what I think Neil, you thought was the best and I can't necessarily argue with. Yeah. And I think this one, I think mine is also a mix of practical and digital, which is the baby dragons at the end. Because that there that is really the oh shit moment right at the end where it's just like oh my god there really are dragons in this world like magic is real everything mm-hmm. we know is upside down 
Um, and those dragons look really great. There are moments later in the series where the dragons look less great, but they really nailed it, and it does feel like they saved all their budget for it. Um, so I think the dragons are my best. I noticed that a lot of the stuff at the top of the wall looks weird. <laughs> Not the shots of them peering over the wall, but like shots where like two characters are talking at the top of the wall. Yeah. And I, they just kind of had to shoot it weird because they didn't, it doesn't seem like they had the budget to do all the, you know, the wonderful vistas and the shots. Like, like you go, if you were to watch the shots of John and Benjamin talking at the top of the wall and then immediately go watch the Watchers on the Wall episode, there's just, it's night and day. Mm. Literally, one takes place at night, one takes place in the day. <laughs> uh, in yeah, the literally, they effects. figured out they should film that shit at night. <laughs> right. So the wall stuff, like the first time you see the wall, it's it looks like a matte painting, and then the, every other time you see the wall, it's it's just not right. So those are mine. But uh, Joanna, what what are your best and worst polygons? Yeah, I I watched because I feel so like uh, poorly qualified to comment on polygons. I watched this YouTube video that's like season one special effects. It's just one of those things where like they show you the thing and then they show you what they map painted and you're like, well, that was a green screen. Oh my god, uh, all of Winterfell is a green screen. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> so Vice to Throck was definitely on there. The wall, uh, Benjamin and John on top of the wall is definitely on there. Um, I, from what I, so looking at that all, I was like, you know what? The eerie from the outside, I think, is the worst matte painting. The, the, mm. the map, Mattias and the matte paintings that they do. Um, the best to me, though, is actually part of the eerie, which is the sky cell, because I can't watch that scene without getting like vertigo. Uh, and that's really Peter Dinklage, like, just a few feet off the ground. <laughs> but just, just the, <laughs> like, the, the concept of the sky cell and the sloped floor is, genius good job george and then i thought they just executed it really well so it is it is when you mention it the whole everything about the eerie from the inside is really great like the set design of that whole set is great the, the moon door stuff is great yeah but yeah you're right that first shot of it when they look up at the eerie it's like wait what Ugh. yeah is did thomas kincaid a master of light paint this <laughs> well they changed that right because it doesn't have the the neck bottleneck throughway that becomes a big deal later on, right? Yeah, they sort of changed the design of it from the book to the show. And then in later um, seasons, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, like in the books, there's no like stairs to the eerie. There's you have to like go up a basket, but the show just could not be there's bothered. Stairs with that. and a basket. Getting up to, to the eerie description in the book is insanity. Right. It's like I think you have to get on a mule and then the mule is no longer okay and then yeah, it is crazy. But no, I think Dave, you're referring to like the um, the place where like Arya and the hound go and they're like oh, yeah, just the kidding cake. your aunt's dead. <laughs> Right, and Arya I don't think that's in the about her sister. Yeah, um, I don't think that's in the matte painting. Yeah, it's not. Um, Joanna, you did in the notes mention one thing that I super agree with, which is oh. those those White Walkers at the beginning. Yeah, but I think a lot of that is practical. It, Which I, I think, think is why it works so well. Yeah, it's guys in suits. I think yeah. or a guy in yeah guys in suits in the dark, and then later when you see him in season two, that's when they've switched to like the cat face CGI. And now like I think they're back to guys in suits. But there was the time yeah, when the, like the, the ones White in Walkers, season in Hard Home are like those are the best version. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Nice. But like uh, before, between season one and Hard Home, the White Walker design was rough stuff. <laughs> nice. But in the very first episode, it's like a guy in the dark and his like eyes are glowy, and that's what you see. <laughs> uh, all right. So our second to last award, mine's going to be quick. This is best performance, which I think as we move along, it'll probably be more of a like a most improved performance thing because. It's, they don't introduce a ton of new characters every season. Um, but mine, very quickly, is Conleth Hill, who plays Varys. Because I don't... I didn't remember, or I guess I didn't notice the first time around, how he just brings it from the beginning. Like, yeah. Varys is just awesome the whole time. And it, other characters, like I said, Amelia Clark, Peter Dinklage, it sort of takes some time to get into their character. Some of them never get the accent right. Um, but like Conleth Hill is just fantastic from the first scene. So I would, I would say that he's my best performance. Um, what, do, what are y'all, what Joanna, you've got, you get the one that I think everyone's going to agree with. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people would say Peter Dinklage is, uh, but, but that's not mine. Mine is Sean Bean. Um, which does seem like a duh obvious thing, but, he, but here's the deal. And we talked about this a little bit before, but, um, the juice of season one of Game of Thrones is this, like, you're on a hero's journey, and then you get the rug pulled out from under you. And so in order for that juice to really work, we need to care so much about Ned Stark uh, for his death to land the way that it does in episode nine. And because you don't, you get nine episodes. It's not like a character that's been on for years and you're like, oh, no, it's like you get nine, nine episodes of this guy where also the story has to do a lot of other things in the meantime. And so Sean Bean like really needs to kill it. And it's, it can't just be like, oh, I know that guy from Lord of the Rings. Like he really needs to inhabit Ned. And I just rewatching this. I was just like everything he does, all that dad stuff that we mentioned. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> the motorcycles agree. <laughs> you know all the all the dad stuff that he mentioned, like all this other stuff. Um, I just think it's vital. It's vital to the success of Game of Thrones that we care about Ned. That he's not just sort of like a carbon, like a like a cardboard hero. That he's like a very interesting figure that we're following, and then for him to be gone, and then we feel that loss for the rest of the show. And I think. You know, not not to sort of alienate our listeners further by negatively comparing our current season to the first season, but some of the heroes, most of the heroes that we have now, like our main heroes with a like capital H sort of thing, are Daenerys and um, Jon Snow, right? And yeah. uh, I think Amelia Clark and Kit Harington are two of the weakest performers in this show. So I think they've gotten better. With with as the show has gone on, but like I just don't think I think that they are leagues behind what Sean Bean is doing in the hero with a capital H role in the first season, and so that's what that's another thing that pales by comparison. Like I I don't feel for Jon Snow the way that I know a lot of viewers do, um, and maybe if he had come back as a wolf, I would feel differently. <laughs> but I don't. So. I I almost suspect that that's going to be something we'll experience more with season two and season three was we get into the idea that the show, a lot of the people, big deaths in the show are, it's not that I miss the characters quite so much as I miss those actors. And there's some amazing actors that have come and then been dispatched by game of Thrones. 
and you sort of miss those presences. Like, I don't miss Tywin Lannister, but I miss Charles Dance. Yeah. So and, I'm exactly. curious to see how that plays out for season two and three and four. And and so, like, mm, I mean, I like Maisie Williams a lot, and I like Sophie Turner, too. But, like, yeah, the Stark, that the Stark kids are now who we're following, and they're maybe not even the best Stark kids. Uh, pour one out for Rickon. Like, the, the promise of Rickon <laughs> that's established in the first season of, like, this is a weird kid who just, like, hangs out in crypts sometimes. He, who he's also gonna, has wolf dreams. He's going to do something interesting. Nope. Just kidding. Nope. It Can't won't even run matter. Can't zigzag. <laughs> anyway. Um, anyway. Uh, Dave, who's your best uh, performance? I agree with Joanna for the most part, but I'm going to go with the flip side, the connection to the old world that we never got to see of Game of Thrones that we saw through performance. It was delivered in one season by Mark Addy, who plays Robert Baratheon. Yes. Mm, he's good is one. very welcome, especially now that I know that I am never going to see another person uh, like having won a war sitting legitimately on the throne probably in this uh, series until the very end. So, considering that he has to provide a whole character arc and a whole bunch of exposition in, uh, you know, eight... No, he only gets seven episodes. Um, it's pretty pretty good. Good job, Mark. <laughs> I agree. He is, he's so joyous he's as he Robert Baratheon, but also such and, a dick. And his bad lip reading is the best. <laughs> he's like... All right. His like being lovesick over Lyanna is so good. Mm-hmm. He like the fact that he knows that his son is a monster is good. Then he looks Cersei in the eye and says, uh, "There's never, there was never a point that I was gonna love you." Yeah. It's devastating and great. Yep. Or like him just shit talking Lancel Lannister. He's like, "What the fuck <laughs> is your name even, Lancel? It's a what terrible the fuck name." Even are you? Also, what do you mean? There's no more wine. How dare you? God, Lancel, he turned out to be a real shit. Um, okay, final award, which I'm going to say this before I say the name of the award, is this award may not make it through the entire series, but we're believers in it, and it could live on forever. But this is the Catelyn Stark Memorial Most Ironic Statement Award. Which... I don't think I don't think it has to be Catelyn Stark to say it. It's just like in the spirit of season one, Catelyn Stark, who was yeah. forever saying this shit. Yep. So this is a, a yeah. quote that comes back to bite a character yeah. much later. Uh, so, uh, Dave, go ahead and start us off with your uh, your quote. I, mine is from Catelyn Stark, and it's sort of the meta of the quotes. In the name of King Robert and the good lords you serve, I call upon you to seize him and help me return him to Winterfell to awaits the king's justice is the line Catelyn starts the War of the Five Kings with. Mm-hmm. Right. It's also her saying it about Tyrion, and none of that happens. None of yes. that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, Joanna, you have a good one as well. Yeah, you said uh, a line that comes back to bite them in the ass way further down the road. This is a pretty immediate ass biting <laughs> for Catelyn Stark. Uh, it's when she's in the brothel with Ned and Lord Baelish, and she says, uh, talking about Lord Baelish, she says, he's like a little brother to me, Ned. He would never betray my trust. There's a great <laughs> YouTube video that someone has made at this moment where they just repeat her saying, he's like a little brother to me, and the camera just keeps zooming in closer and closer on Littlefinger's face. <laughs> because, like, not only is she very wrong about this, but also, like, maybe her just even saying that 
push Littlefinger to betray Ned harder than he might have otherwise <laughs> done because Catelyn called him a little brother and he's like, oh, I'll show you little brother. Ugh. Anyway, that's my I point. feel like what we're going to end up getting with this award is the revelation that Catelyn Stark is responsible for everything. <laughs> that's <laughs> See, that was what a lot of people felt in the first couple seasons. Catelyn Stark was sort of the... Um, Skylar White of Game of Thrones yeah. for a little while. So. <laughs> uh, mine, which is, I mean, I almost fell off the couch because I, one, forgot that this line was in there, and two, it's the worst one, where they are outside the twins talking strategy with Rob, and she's uh, she volunteers to go talk to Lord Walder, and she says, I've known Lord, Lord Walder since I was a girl. He would never hurt me. Catelyn, why so wrong all the time? (laughs) Oh, Catelyn. Oh, you poor, sweet summer child. (laughs) (laughs) So those are the Catelyn Stark Memorial Most Iconic Statement Awards. Yeah, I feel like in season four, it'll still be the Catelyn Stark Memorial, but we'll have a ton of, like, I don't know, reek things that were said, and it'll all be horrible. Or R.I.P. Prince Oberyn sayings. Yeah. R.I.P. Prince Oberyn sayings. I can, I, I can wait for that one. <laughs> well, guys, I think that's going to do it for season one. Neil, you have an awesome season two phrase written here. Here's our season two phrase from Mr. Neil Miller. Yes. So uh, next week we are going to be exploring my low-key favorite season, which is season two. Uh, but we have in season two, you can expect among the following... Baratheon Brothers, A Red Woman, Tyrion as the Hand, Joffrey the Shit, Smoke Monsters, and other stuff. So I cannot wait to talk about season two, because it, the more we dig into this, the more I'm like, man, I really like season two. So, What I have learned by enjoying the season one rewatch so much that I immediately had to go into season two is the benefit of being able to rewatch these in a binge manner and live in the world for hours at a time is so much better than not having any idea what's going to happen. It really makes uh, me excited to go back to the only thing that makes me excited to go back to season six is the idea of watching it all at once and seeing how. Yeah. So like Karth, Karth isn't as bad as you may remember it being because we had weeks, weeks of where are my dragons and here you maybe have two hours of it. So next week, your homework assignment is to watch the second season of Game of Thrones. Until then, let's say I wanted to hear about some Star Wars. Joanna Robinson, where would I do that? Oh, you might want to tune into the podcast Little Gold Men, the Vanity Fair podcast, where we talk about a lot of Star Wars and some Twin Peaks. Or you might want to go to VanityFair.com to read about Star Wars. Or you might want to follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This, where I will be babbling about Star Wars. Sounds good. Mr. Neil Miller. Um, I'm not... No, wait. Tomorrow's the Star Wars anniversary, so I will be writing about Star Wars this week uh, <laughs> over at filmschoolrejects.com, uh, where you can also find me. I'm going to do a little Game of Thrones weekly column leading up to, in conjunction, it's a side column to this podcast, which is going to be fun. Um, that's filmschoolrejects.com. That's the website. I said that. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Rejects. Make sure you follow our show at Storm of Spoilers. And uh, if you have any th- emails, because we know you guys want to send, you've been waiting all off season to send us emails about Game of Thrones. Now is your chance. Storm of Spoilers at gmail.com. 
And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You can find the rest of my podcast work at fightinginthewarroom.com. Please tweet me about the superheroes, Twin Peaks, television, whatever stuff that you're watching, because I need something to push back the news that tries to rush in when I open up Twitter. So help me out with that, guys. And until next time, welcome back to Westeros.